welcome to our Calgary episode 002. I am your host, Lucas Costello, a.k.a. El Costello, a.k.a. Papa Lucas. Thank you for pressing play. I hope you are staying safe in these times. And if you're struggling, please feel free to reach out by emailing connect at ourcalgary.org. It is late night, Tuesday, September 1st, and like most parents, I am stressed as hell about our oldest first day of school tomorrow. Congratulations to those folks who already had their first day and did so without a meltdown. So I'm going to keep this short. First, I want to give absolute and total praise to educators, school administrators, school custodial staff, daycare staff, for making it work with the twine and wax paper this Kafka nightmare government, AKA the UCP government has provided. I am going to try to do two episodes a week, but realistically as a DIY production might be a bit tough in the next couple month or so. A lot has happened since I had this conversation with Mount Royal University's professor Maki Matopanyane. So I've had to revise this intro. There were defund the police, refund the community protests and rallies in cities across Canada over the weekend. In Montreal, a 100-year-old Sir Jam statue was pulled down and beheaded in the process. Alberta's justice minister basically used this as an opportunity to call for more policing and racialized communities. Weird, right? Anyway. All of this had me thinking a lot about symbols and the role they play consciously or unconsciously in helping enforce the fictions of those in power, e.g. statues. Why it gives those of us with not a lot of power, if any, a bit of a thrill, a hint at what is possible when those statues come down. While yes, the conservative culture warriors like Jason Kenney and his overpaid pout rage posse seize on moments like this to distract from a back-to-school plan written on the back of a napkin. They are genuinely shaken and take the boo-boo of a statue of a dude who is literally on our money more personally than people going hungry or not being able to afford daycare because when the statues of colonists fall, it is a personal attack against the fiction of their limited fleeting power. As the jam statue fell, so goes Kenny's popularity rating according to Angus Reid. He's the least popular premier in all of mainland Canada, only polling slightly above the premier of Newfoundland and Labrador, which, to be frank, I think is unfair. He should absolutely be ranked as the worst in Canada. I'm going to keep this pitch simple. If you like what you hear and you want to invest in the vision of a podcast that celebrates workers and diverse voices, Think about subscribing for three bucks a month or more if you can at patreon.com slash our Calgary. Even if you're not in Calgary, I have it on good authority that there will be something here for you. Then I can also give you a shout out on the next episode. Can't do it right now. I totally get it. But please hit subscribe on your podcast provider, share, like, etc. Thank you to the folks who have given me feedback already. I've shortened the music as a result. In the future, I am going to start breaking up these longer interviews into two parts so that they're easier to digest. But in the interest of getting this one into your eardrums, it's pretty much raw and uncut. 
If you're just here for the dunks on Casey Medu, the new Justice Minister, you'll have to skip to the 59-minute mark. Let's go. I'd like to welcome to our Calgary, Maki Motopanyane, a professor, associate professor in women's and gender studies at, in the Department of Humanities at Mount Royal University and the editor of a collection of essays, Motherhood and Lone Single Parenting, a 21st Century Perspective, which came out a couple years, a few years ago, as well as something that I'm really interested to read from I guess eight years ago now, mothering in hip hop culture, representation, and experience. Welcome to our Calgary. Thanks so much for having me on. Yeah, no worries. And thank you for making the time. I'm sure you're getting ready and busy for a return to teaching, uh, educating, and transition to, I think, what is a whole new landscape for a lot of educators right now, as well as getting ready as a parent. How, how are you doing, Maki? <laughs> I'm hanging in there. I'm doing okay. It's a lot. Um, we are very busy right now heading into the new semester uh, for Mount Royal University. All of our courses um, are online for the fall. So uh, we've been working on this over the summer, just um, getting our courses ready for that kind of online delivery, um, getting accustomed to uh, new tools, uh, you know, online tools uh, with which I've been unfamiliar. So uh, and also just trying to uh, to plan and uh, as much as possible be creative in um, in the resources uh, that I'm offering online and and how I'm offering them as well, um, while trying to maintain some flexibility there, because of course, uh, the students who enroll in my classes also have full lives right now and are navigating uh, all kinds of uh, challenging and, and difficult circumstances. So um, need to be very very aware of that. Uh, all of us are kind of moving together and navigating this this new reality uh, together and uh, to the best of our abilities, trying to be as, as thoughtful and uh, kind to one another and right. and considerate as possible given uh, given the, the current realities. And how do you feel about, I know I've, I've read some stuff around educators feeling a bit uh, concerned about, I guess, the intellectual property around around the lectures and, and so on. You know, I, I, I am mixed feelings about that because on some days, you know, I think, well, first of all, I think education is a right and everyone should have access to the education they want and need. But at the same time, I also understand the efforts that educators put into to their their courses and and I think that their their work should be recognized and valued and there should be it shouldn't I guess my concern is that once you have a session recorded then the institutions can just put those lectures onto something like Coursera and monetize it that way without there being any material benefit to the the folks that did all that legwork is that has that been a consideration at all for your development of of your courses 
Um, not for me. We do have the university has uh, is continuing to to look into this and to do a good job in terms of giving us guidelines around this particular issue. And it's not a, a finished subject. The, the conversations around it continue. But because the academic landscape is so diverse, so when we're talking about how information is shared, it's a really broad landscape. It really depends uh, on uh, the the person's subject area and the particular type of work that they're doing. If we're just talking about the basic um, recording a lecture, uh, for myself, that hasn't been an issue for me. For instance, um, in the past, I've been okay with students asking to record my lectures. Now with that, I don't know they're doing it, they're using it for personal use. Um, but there's always that sort of question that can sometimes make some people uncomfortable in terms of not really knowing what's being done with that uh, after it leaves the classroom space. You know, I the, the way that I teach, that's kind of the point, is that that information uh, ideally would be distributed, would be, would reach people. And so that's that's not really been been a concern. But to the question you're asking regarding the uh, the commercialization of of that property, that that intellectual property by universities, you know, there's so much that we don't know yet. We will see. So we certainly hope that that is not one of the manifestations that that we will see coming out of this. I doubt that because of the the kinds of protections that that are in place. But we always have to be um, aware and vigilant around these things as um, as faculty and as academics, and and we're doing that. And again, in terms of our institution, those those conversations are are happening and. So far, the guidelines have been enough, enough to get us through this particular moment. So here's a question then to how how has the uh, Ministry of Advanced Education been? Have they been involved or has it been similar to the Ministry of Education's approach to to back to school? Our first episode was with a teacher and essentially it was everything had been downloaded onto the school boards and the schools themselves in in that preparation. Has there been any support around this moment, around COVID issues, around, you know, learning tools for for educators to, you know, just a simple thing like how to run a Zoom call is or is that all going uh, onto onto the educators and the institutions themselves. Yes, that's right. Yeah. So in that sense, I would say it's all in-house. So our institution is carrying that that weight, the weight of that responsibility, and supporting us um, how however it can. Right. In that transition, and that's the same with everything else that's happening. So where there is a mandate um, to to cut costs, the institution is has to figure out. Sometimes there's direction in, in terms of where that should should be, but most of the time the institution is entirely responsible. They're just given a number. So this is the number that needs to happen, the institution that needs to figure out how, what that's going to look like in practice. 
Wow. So I think, again, for me, that's ultimately a huge frustration is the basic things that we know in this moment with COVID, right, is is the idea that people need space and you you need to sort of help empower folks to to do things that they wouldn't normally do, such as, you know, digital learning or online learning. And the fact that there hasn't even been, say, funding for more uh, IT support for universities or something along those lines, it's, it's still, they're pretty much holding the line on, on their cutbacks then. Is, is, that, is that an accurate assessment? Absolutely. Yeah. Wow. 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 So then for you, that I think that's an also another interesting, so so Robin, who was on the, the first uh, episode, herself being a parent, you know, she was optimistic and her fellow teachers for her own kids and, and for her colleagues as well, that they would do what they could to create a, a safe, a possible environment and a, a, an environment for learning. But I'm interested to hear your thoughts as someone you know, who is an educator at the same time, you've been mandated to do all of these things online. So as a parent, how do you, how do you approach this return to school? You know, what, what, what is, what is that sort of, I guess, dichotomy there, right? Uh, Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's very difficult. And, um, you know, to be frank, uh, there are all kinds of very serious negative impacts that are not being con- considered um, fully and and with the kind of seriousness um, that they're due. Uh, one of which, and I'm sure you've, you've seen, uh, there have been a number of articles recently talking about the large gendered impact of all of this. Right. And th- this has been since the pandemic hit. We've seen this trend and this pattern. Why do we see this as having this, this kind of en- enormous uh, gender impact? Well, if we look at um, Stats Canada data, you know, the, uh, the Canadian census a number of years ago, I believe it was in the early 2000s, had started collecting data by asking questions on the national census about um, leisure time and housework. So right. unpaid labor, essentially. So which is great because now we have that, those those uh, numbers um, and we know that it's still the case that. Canadian women are performing overwhelmingly, uh, carrying that burden of unpaid labor. This includes housework, all the dom- the kind of um, feminized uh, domestic labor, um, and and child rearing. So when you look on, uh, for instance, you look at the number of hours uh, that people would be engaged in some sort of housework or or child rearing responsibilities or care, kind of dependent care, uh, whether that's children or not. Uh, Women are just overwhelmingly uh, shouldering the weight of that in Canada. And recently there was there were some numbers, I believe it was the uh, the Parkland Institute that is located in the University of Alberta that was showing that that was around the difference there was 35, uh, 35 hours a week uh, extra that women are 
are uh, engaged in those activities. Wow. So and that, is that that's, is that Alberta or is that that's Canada wide? That is, I believe, that was Alberta. I hope okay. I'm I'm uh, right on that limb. That's okay. No, I don't have that. I thought I might have made a note of that, but yeah, but I still, believe that was Alberta. Regardless, that's that's a huge disparity in in terms of you know having one's own life. Yeah, yeah. So if that's the if that's where we're starting from, this is before the pandemic. Right. Right. So so already this is why we would have seen um, discussions of women doing a double or a triple shift. That's that's what that means, is that they were both engaging in wage labor um, and participating in the labor sector and also carrying the weight of this unpaid labor already and navigating that to the best of their abilities. So when something like the pandemic hits, you know, there are a number of things that happen. Uh, if if we're talking about uh, a heterosexual couple uh, who um, is speaking numerically, just outnumbered, out you know, in terms of when you're looking at couples as a demographic, um, those kinds of households would be predominant numerically. So in, right. in that kind of situation, uh, because we have already the reality of a gendered pay gap, and we have the the landscape that I just described already, um, couples will tend to have a very reasonable and logical conversation. Um, where, if childcare is not available, um, daycare is not available, uh, even before the pandemic, uh, it was high cost and not enough spaces. So very often that conversation will be, well, does it make sense for uh, both people to be in the wage labor market and for one person's salary, on average, almost three quarters of it a month to be going towards the cost of that child care? Totally. Right. So if, you know, it's getting less and less, um, less and less possible for two-income households um, or for households to, to get by on one income. Um, but you do have a lot of examples of this kind of conversation. Again, very logical in, in one sense to say, well, it just, it just doesn't make good economic sense. We might as well just have one income. But then the benefit, on the other hand, is that there's a parent there uh, right. with the child consistently. Um, and you weren't, you don't get left with very much of that second income right. anyway at the end of yeah. the month. So the household is not be really benefiting that much. Um, so what's the point? Um, but the problem there, of course, is that for a number of different reasons, some very explicitly and obviously just basic economics, you, you earn more, so you should continue working. Right. So the person with the higher income will be the one to, to stay engaged in, in the labor market. And also the sociocultural, all of the sociocultural things that come into play right. that make parenting and the direct 
association to children, uh, highly gendered, and and normalize that direct link between women and children. Um, you also have to various forms of women kind of internal, understandably internalizing these uh, ex- social expectations as well, mm-hmm. and so they're navigating guilt and so on. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, right? So all of these factors then kind of come together to make it so that it's women who will make that, and here I'll put these these air quotes that you can't see, but make that a choice, right. make this kind of opting out a, a kind of voluntary uh, choice for for women and feeds into the pattern that we're seeing, which is just an enormous number of women who could who who ideally would want to keep participating mm-hmm. in the labor market who have talents and uh, skills to contribute and those are being taken out of the labor market Completely. so we we are not better for this this pattern um and 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 who who are uh, talked about as having made a very personal and voluntary decision to opt out. That's a problem, of course, for us in terms of properly understanding this pattern because it becomes an invisible pattern. When people talk about uh, women just kind of evaporating from the labor market in this way and talk about it as just voluntary choices... Uh, then we're not tracking it properly. Mm-hmm. We're not talking about it in useful ways. Um, you know, I, as I mentioned, it has huge negative impact on our on our labor market, but it also has huge negative impact for women. Yes, uh, because it really increases that economic uh, dependency long term. It has consequences in terms of um uh, uh retirement right. i haven't had enough coffee uh this morning <laughs> so i okay. i may i may start sipping as as we're talking i'm realizing how could i how could i have forgotten uh the word retirement yeah it has huge negative impact that way yeah. economically for for women and we're really responsible we truly are we have an obligation to um to be um, noticing this, to be tracking it, and and to be engaging in uh, meaningful redress around this, rather than consistently uh, downloading this reality onto individual households and individual totally. women within those households. Totally, I think you know even in the twenty nineteen provincial election, you know one one thing I constantly pushed on in in a lot of households whenever i saw folks who who had kids you know i said i and it it there was this is anecdotal but it was the absolute truth in that my partner and i were having even before the pandemic we're having a very serious discussion as her maternity leave was was ending you know is it worth her going back to work when we end up spending you know, almost $20,000 a year on childcare. And, you know, it just, it, you know, and, and that's, I think also a really 
huge uh, deficit of vision on the current provincial government in, in the cancellation of that $25 a day daycare program uh, pilot project. I also think that was a huge mistake of the Alberta NDP in when they were government, I think they should have just rolled that out because then everybody would have had it and it would have had uh, much more resonant impact than a few communities here and there throughout Alberta. Yes, exactly. So, you know, that I think there's two, two sort of criticisms there. Although I get the idea of doing a pilot project and, and so on and limited funds and all of these things. But again, I think it was just a huge uh, missed opportunity there to reify yes. something that really would have been a huge help right now. And, and I think too, just even in the context of the pandemic now, I was out of work for some time and it was very interesting to me that of the parents, once the playgrounds reopened, of the parents that were at the playground, more often than not, I was the only male parent, right? It was very, and I, I definitely need to do more in the house. I try to step up, but I know that there's just some time too, right? Where the kids don't want me, <laughs> right? Like there's, there's just, I try to intervene and that can actually escalate, you know, meltdowns even further. So there, there is that balance that I will never have to deal with as the male parent in the relationship as the father. And so I think that's, that's something that's really hit home for me too, though, just seeing how, just asking that question, you know, I've seen maybe two to three dads, met two to three dads over the past few months at the playgrounds, right? And and that to me is, I think, shows that we're doing also something wrong <laughs> as, as, as a, I don't know if that's societal or if, or, or uh, that's, that's just a cultural issue here. And, you know, I, I live in sort of one of the more family neighborhoods of, of the city. And again, the, 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 the dad to mom ratio has been really poor in just this anecdotal context. So it is worrying to me too, right? Well, yeah. And, and it's, it's, it goes beyond, um, attitudinal. So it's not just, well, let's shift how we think and feel. Um, there needs to be um, structural support there for those shifts. So as I was saying earlier, when, when, when a couple, when a heterosexual couple has that kind of conversation in the context of a gendered pay gap where men overwhelmingly earn more right. than women, and they have that conversation around, does it make sense for a good bulk of the woman, a good bulk of uh, one of their salaries, usually the woman's salary, she earns less, to be going to childcare every month? That, again, is a logical conversation right. to have. Um, and it's being had because there aren't proper structural supports in place to, to support people in making a different decision. So, so right now we're seeing that the Alberta government has mandated, uh, so that it can be in accordance with the Human Rights Act, that all employers now must 
provide an option to their employees that supports uh, the the protection of uh, family status in accordance with the Human Rights Act. So that means all employee, if an employee approaches uh, an employer and says, you know, this whole navigating this this very difficult balance between being able to fulfill 100% of my work obligations while having to navigate the pandemic with children and whether those kids are going to be attending school in person or they'll be learning online it's it's a lot right because even if they're going into the schools in person that will not be consistent we we know this so someone will start showing sniffles or whatever and then they'll have to stay home and get tested the people who were around them will have to also uh isolate uh if a teacher right. gets ill then what happens in terms of a replacement there so um it's going to be a lot of kind of tripping along the way there will not be consistency in terms of the um delivery of the curriculum um and so kids will even if they're attending in person will will there'll be lots of interruptions right. there um, it's very difficult for for parents to manage. It's very difficult for moms and for women uh, to manage. So in that sense, if that person were to approach their employer and say, um, what do I do here? Um, they, they're given the option to take, <coughs> excuse me, to take uh, unpaid leave with job security for a year. So this is leading us into August 2021. So that's wow. the option. That's what the government has said, that this is their way of helping Albertans out, uh, ju- um, helping parents, Albertan parents out during this time, is you can choose to take unpaid leave with job security into August of 2021. So again, let's talk about what kind of choice that really is. Right. right. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, and, and that's what I mean by um, inadequate structural supports. Okay, so if we're really, if we care and, and we care to um, carefully and accurately analyze what is happening with gender and, and the workforce, then we will understand very quickly why that is an inadequate way of ensuring that we are not slipping into a 1950s conventional um, kind of heterosexist gender dynamic. Right. So it's very, very difficult. What are people supposed to do? And how many people can afford to take unpaid leave? Exactly. Well, I just think about, too, in Alberta, we have a like a I, I, if I remember the stats correctly, I don't know the exact numbers, but we have a, a, a pretty high lone parent household um, no, uh, representation in, in not just Calgary, but across the province. There there are a lot of lone parent households here. Uh, I, I don't, I, I just remember seeing it and being kind of my jaw dropped a little bit in, in that regard. And so if you're a lone parent household, can't, what are you supposed to do? Uh, as an un, unpaid leave 
how does that work? How do you survive on that? Right. Yeah. And how do you get whatever Serb is, is at this point, it's becoming more difficult to navigate. I think, whereas the initial, um, I think the initial delivery of it was pretty okay, but now, you know, there's, there's, they're creating barriers into how to access that. Right. And it's, it's becoming almost means tested in a way, which again, I think is a huge structural barrier that is, that is occurring at the federal level as well, but we're not. And, and even if you look at too, what the province did initially from, from the, the early days, there was that, that initial support, but, you know, there was countless stories of how the online uh, tools for it were, weren't working and people weren't able to access and it was this limited window. And then around labor rights too, if we think about how, if you tie in the fact that there has been a further stripping of labor rights in Alberta with, with the most recent session. And we know that this government has, has very much sent a very clear message to folks in, in, in power that they don't really care about regulations all that much right now. And under the guise of, of red tape, we're, we're losing environmental protections and so on. We know that we're going to lose protections around labor. You're also going to have an under-resourced uh, labor board, uh, as is often the case when, when you have these useless ministries of, of red tape reduction and things like that in place. They create more money for, you know, for, for the ministers and ministerial staff, but then you end up losing money towards actually defending the interests of, of, of working people, which is amazing and ironic and by design. But, you know, how, how I don't even know if folks necessarily know they can access the unpaid leave, right? At, at the very least. And, and, you know, it's not like they're, they're saying like, Hey, here's how, how we can help you, you know? Right. In terms of just make, yeah. Yeah. Sharing that. The communication of yeah. it. Yeah. 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 Right. Like you, when you have like, Oh my God, the, the yesterday when you had the Twitter account and I really try to avoid talking about Twitter, but the Twitter account of the government of Alberta Health Ministry is tweeting about oil prices and and the decline of of oil prices. You know that we are not in a rational mm-hmm. realm anymore. <laughs> like, well, you know, it's um, it's 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 difficult, and I I have to tell you, you know, it's it's a daily uh, it's a daily struggle for me to mm-hmm. just kind of uh, breathe and uh, go through through the paces uh, of, again, preparing my courses, figuring right. out how I'll be navigating this um, very, very difficult uh, situation of having kids at home. Um, right. You know, I've made the choice uh, to, to have my kids at home learning online. Um, I completely understand others who who make a different uh, and I'll say choice again in quotation marks. Right. Um, but it's it's a struggle because it is absolutely um, it's a farce. It's a farce and it's a disgrace. And and I say that in a nonpartisan way. You know, it it, it is just a complete lack of, where do I begin with this list? A complete lack of decorum. Um, 
very, very uh, sort of blind, uh, ideologically rooted kind of fundamentalist approach to doing politics. Really, we, we a, a lot of us are up in arms, but it should be it should be just unacceptable um, to all, really, in this province. Uh, and having lived in other parts of the world and been exposed to at least the two, two, definitely two types of dictatorship, um, I'm well aware of what's this stylistically um, and in practice, this kind of culture and, and approach means. It's very dangerous. Um, and this has nothing to do, again, with whether where one sits on the political spectrum. Right. I, I, I don't know what it is about um, people's inability to at least on an instinctive level sense um, how far gone uh, down the wrong path we we really are. Mm-hmm. Honestly, I think it's a it's I think there's two pieces to that, and you know I I feel like I've talked to thousands of people across all sectors of of Alberta at this point, just doing uh, elections and so on. And I think one, it's about exposure, right? So in in Alberta, because you have this institutionalized conservatism, you know, literally a century of, of conservatism making decisions around, you know, what's important in education and so on. And really kind of making sure though at the same time people's health is is relatively well taken care of and education is relatively well taken care of um even though obviously the Klein years were, were saw a huge decline in, in that relationship but so so this there's there's this real held on to idea that it would just be a return to sort of the the good old days right and and those good old days are, are going to come back um, and you know the oil market prices or whatever these because these things are beyond our control we are okay we're gonna be fine because it'll come back again eventually or something like that and then I think the the other actually that was the two pieces like institutionalized con- conservatism and sort of lack of exposure I think you know you can also see that in folks who who think that COVID-19 is a hoax right we're just sort of in this weird information echo chamber, especially supported by, you know, media here in Alberta, which is very much on the side of government most days. Yeah, and I worry about this taken for granted um, attitude that if I could just put it in in the most sort of simplistic way. If someone is on your team, whether we're saying it's ideological team, um, political team, if someone is on your team, then it doesn't really matter the, the behaviors that you're witnessing because ultimately they're on your team. Right. So there's a sort of overvaluation of the way that people identify with a political path uh, and then will just numb uh, any and 
any sort of like moral understanding that they would otherwise have um, and would otherwise apply to other situations just doesn't apply to this particular situation or the people uh, representing that that team or that ideology. Right. And that is very dangerous. And it's dangerous for them as well. You know, because what happens there is you you let that kind of behavior slide and you keep letting it slide. And then, of course, it's affecting the team members as well in various right. ways. Right. It's just not necessarily affecting the upper echelon of the team. Um, and you find yourself in a very difficult situation. Yeah. People who are not perceived to be your team members will be uh, raising raising the red flags all the time. Um, but by the time the team members realize that, you know, they're, they're in a very, very bad situation, it's, it's quite late in the game at that point. So, you know, this, this inability of people to think about um, shared political interests across uh, differences in terms of political platform, you know, and, and how do we, how do we get people there in terms of being able to really focus on shared political interests, uh, across those, uh, those kind of, uh, labels, political labels, which again, I, I, when I look at the, the style of the politics now, um, the the current government has been very um, strident in ensuring that discursively and in practice, people are focused on the label right. of the team uh, rather than thinking thinking broadly um, and and in a more sophisticated way uh, about the practice of the thing and the policies that are being put in place and to what extent those might actually uh, be or not be uh, of benefit to us right. as a whole, as a diverse whole. Yeah. And, it, and you know, I think because so much of this stuff, right, has become about electoralism rather than necessarily, you know, as you said, well-being. And I, I think it's also important to, for folks that are listening, that when when you talk about you, you've been in spaces where there is dictatorship, it, were, look, you were born in South Africa, am I not mistaken? I was, uh, I was born in Bucharest, actually, okay. in, oh, okay. in South Africa. Okay, mm -hmm. wow. I had no idea. <laughs> so wow. that's what I wow. meant by the two different types when yeah. I, when I was yeah. speaking earlier. I've, yeah. uh, I've experienced communist Romania right. and, uh, and have a, uh, a very close at hand experience of uh, apartheid South Africa as well. You know, I, I found that um, 35 hours okay, of unpaid right. housework uh, info. And it, so this, this is about pre-pandemic. Uh, it, it does have to do with the Parkland okay. Institute at the University of Alberta, um, showing that this, well, this part was well known. So pre-pandemic, the, um, the Alberta had the right. highest uh, gendered pay gap in the country. 
uh, and that uh, women were women in Alberta were uh, on average doing about thirty five hours of unpaid wow. housework uh, per week. Um, wow. More, yeah, more than men, and and more more than what you saw in other provinces. Yeah, and I found a direct correlation, by the way, between the cost of uh, childcare and the gendered income gap, which is not surprising. So I did a cross-Canada comparison. Um, I can't remember when that was, a a year or so ago. Um, uh, Wrote a paper with uh, an economist, Adian McFarlane, who was just wonderful in terms of gathering data. He used to work for Stats Canada. Um, So we did this cross-Canada comparison and saw that pattern that in the provinces where you had um, something close to universal, so Quebec, obviously, universal (laughs) child, or or as close as you can get. Right. uh, Excuse me. And... uh, in those provinces, you had uh, uh, the lowest gendered pay gap. And in the provinces where, uh, and in the cities, uh, Vancouver, Toronto, Calgary, um, where you had very high cost child care, the gender pay gap was also uh, wide. Wow. Wow. Um, not surprising, but still chilling i guess disappointing frustrating to hear right so there the idea that oh things things have leveled out between men and women it's very clear that this is not the case uh by that research uh, you know this stuff is really a downer <laughs> but i i do think it'd be it, you know one thing in calgary that i think has been encouraging to see uh, and I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on. It feels like there is, there is, you know, resistance happening. There's solidarity happening uh, around. You know, I went to one of matter rallies in in the city, and I went to the one at the Olympic Plaza, and I was shocked, uh, genuinely shocked, to see as many people as there were out uh, in support uh, of of this movement and and to see that you know broad range of, of people a lot of young people a lot of um you know a lot of different ages actually and um so i think that was encouraging you're seeing these sort of rolling protests around mla's offices around the return to school and things like that so yeah i, I mm-hmm. what you know at having been here for for quite some time now um, have you ever seen anything of this nature in Calgary before? And and what 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 do you find encouraging? And right now, because I'm 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 rooted in the post secondary right. sector. That's my immediate contact and and context. But yeah, beyond that, to see the kind of activism, the kinds of conversations that are happening, it is encouraging to see the way that we're talking as part of regular public discourse, mm-hmm. that is encouraging because I can think back even, you know, 15 years ago in Canada when it just would have been unusual 
to have journalists using the kinds of words that are being used now right. or to see pe- see so much um, public discourse that to me um, reflects a kind of mainstreaming of feminist and anti-racist language in a way that really we wouldn't have seen in years prior. But there's also a reaction to the, that improved discourse, right? Like, I think that's the, it's, you know, I think the one silver lining, sorry to, to jump in here, but, you know, no, no, no. on the one hand, there's, there is this silver lining, right? Where this, this odd thing has happened where people are really reassessing and redefining what matters to them, what is important to them, you know, and realizing that maybe their their bosses don't necessarily have their best interests in mind and folks aren't getting the, the corporate parties every, you know, three months or whatever, where they get to feel kind of semi-important. And I think the most encouraging moment Again, a lot of my life in the past few months has been sp- spent in the playgrounds <laughs> uh, talking to one of the few dads I encountered. And, you know, this is by all assessments, not left wing. I would say, you know, just your sort of average working parent, you know, and he was the one talking to me about defunding the police as an example, you know, as as how this this is probably a good idea. And this was before I think even all of the stuff came out about what, what's happened in terms of police abuses in Calgary by CPS here. So, you know, the fact that that someone, a total stranger is talking to another stranger initially about, about defunding police, you know, it, I'm still kind of in awe of that. And, and we'll see, you know, how long that will sustain, because I think this idea of defunding the police and refunding communities is hugely important and probably uh, the more they fly over people's homes with a helicopter, mm-hmm. we'll get more support <laughs> over time. But, you know, at the same time, in terms of that reaction piece, right, I think about how a mural, mm-hmm. a simple mural that said a very true statement that Black Lives Matter uh, all of a sudden became this big point of conflict and weird sort of rallying point for people to politely be racist i think is what it seemed like to me it's you know creating this sort of narrative and i I think one of the original uh, antagonists toward the the black lives matter mural if if i remember correctly and i I might be wrong because this might have just been twitter chatter was that this individual backdated a blog post about the appreciation of the mural that was being painted mm-hmm. over or whatever. And I just, you know, it's so it's like you have this moment of hope. And then, you know, obviously what's happening uh, in Kenosha again, right? It's, it's you know, you, you think, oh, wow, things are going to change. And then this happens, right? And yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and <laughs> I don't know, at least in my lifetime, when it's not been like this and and what i mean by that is there is all there's always this um difference between the function the structural function of our institutions and then what is happening in the landscape of public discourse 
So in the landscape of public discourse, we find what we've been talking about, that there is a visible mainstreaming of, of uh, ideas and language that I know for me, 15 to 20 years ago, uh, I wouldn't have heard this. Even, for instance, the mention of white, a white person using the word white, <laughs> mm. you know, descriptively, right? So mm. journalists were not using that type of, of language. So anyway, we, we have that. Um, and as you mentioned, we also have the, the, the discursive uh, backlash to that as Mm -hmm. well, but not just discursive, because when we look at the, again, the, the structural function of the institutions that are in place, they are linked to the discursive backlash that we're seeing. So I always like to look at what is the function of an institute? What is actually happening? What is the impact? Uh, what are the policies in place? What is made allowable? And when we look at those concrete things, then we can start to understand what is um, what are the values at heart that are continuing to be represented? What are the goals? What are the aims that are continuing to be represented uh, through s- structural procedure? So, so that's what I mean by, by function, right? And, and so, sorry, can we just step back a bit to just for discursive, the, the, just for some folks, right? Yeah, so discursive yeah. would be, would be sort of the, the varying discourses. Would that be? That's right. Yeah, that's okay. right. Yeah. The, yeah. the kind of large scale, larger scale ways that people talk about things. Okay. Cool. Yeah, yeah. And you can start to see patterns as well. You know, you can start to look for patterns in the way that a particular topic is talked about. And so we would call that kind of a, a discursive pattern when when you start to, to really pay attention and study. Well, how are people talking about, um, for instance, uh, the lethal police violence? Mm-hmm. Right. And, mm-hmm. and who is speaking? How are, how are institutions, how are, um, how are the police talking about this and so on? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah. And I think even like the fact that sort of, and maybe this is a bit more um, specific to, to sort of activist culture, but I, the, the idea that, you know, there is, there is some language around what's happening in the United States as being police riots versus you know race riots because i think yeah shifting that you know and acknowledging where the actual where a lot of the majority of the blame around the violence is happening and and the, a lot of that property destruction it is mm-hmm. it is sparking off as a result direct action or direct response to to the the overreach of of the state in in uh, in a lot of cities yeah yeah, you know when you were mentioning the um, um, the mural, right? So the decision that is made around that exemplifies that structural function. Okay. Right. So in terms of pushing for change, now you know we were talking about oh this is it's good to see the the show of support. 
And mm-hmm. it's good to see this kind of progressive landscape of, of public discussion. Mm-hmm. But we have a long way to go in terms of shifting the function of institutions. 100%. And what they and what they protect and and the the values at their core. And that mural um, situation is symptomatic of that and, and and really symptomatic of the challenge that we have ahead of us in mm-hmm. in Calgary and and in Alberta because it just shows that it's people might even be okay with the discursive part. Mm-hmm. Just the fact that the conversation is happening and yes. nothing more. Okay. Yes, that might be okay. And for some people, that's not okay. Even that's threatening in some way. Mm-hmm. Um, but as soon as you begin to take steps towards uh, actual redress, mm-hmm. that's when uh, people ha- have this understanding that something incredibly threatening is happening, that there's a loss of some sort. And that's the shift that we need to continue to, to push for because what white supremacy does, and, and especially in, in the context of uh, conventional capitalism, is that it really normalizes this idea that privileged classes and identities um, when there is a shift towards sharing and mutuality that that shift is a loss and not just a loss an unfair loss okay and and that is erroneous when when you start to share space and your society is changing but it's changing in a way that makes allowable greater mutuality and and greater par- sharing and equity in terms of participation and voice it's different but it's it's not an unfair loss it's just different but it gets calculated and felt as an unfair loss. And so, and, and so people who have benefited in various ways from the existing system react to it based on this illusion that it's an unfair loss of some sort. And so, yes, that can be very ugly. That reaction, when someone erroneously believes there's something unfair happening, <laughs> Um, that can range from just uh, verbal uh, unpleasantness to actually very right. violent behavior. Right. I think, you know, uh, jumping off, uh, back a bit too, to sort of the, the, the piece around the support and structural uh, change that is necessary. I think that's a good segue because um, I know time is limited here to sort of have a little discussion about something that I think is symbolically really important uh, that's happened recently in Alberta. However, what that means structurally, you know, I'd like to, to talk to you a bit about. So just uh, this, this week, the, uh, there, was, there was a cabinet shuffle 
in in the provincial government, wherein Casey Maidu, who I believe is of Nigerian descent, was made the, the Minister of Justice and Solicitor General here in Alberta. And I think he may be the first uh, Black man in in Canada to, to hold this position. So I think it's important to acknowledge symbolically that is that is important. At the same time, for me, think there are there are a couple of, of flags here. So first the first flag for me is the fact that Maydu was supported by by right now, which is a, a forced birth activist group headed up by a former staffer of Jason Kenney in, in, in Ottawa, Catherine Gallagher. So I think that one, so so you have this person that in, in a sense has a political debt to to this forced birth activist group concerning. Also, there is, you know, record of Maydu basically having, you know, active support for rebel media. And I know in Alberta that doesn't mean so much, but I think Rebel Media is is a scary organization in a lot of different ways, you know, and they're also clowns at the same time. They're like horror clowns, the, the Pennywise from it, essentially. And I think the other piece to me, I think, is is the way that media in Alberta anyway has has discussed this. And it's, it's really concerning, and I would love to hear your thoughts on this. So there was a, a CBC article and the, the lead about Medu's appointment to the Minister of Justice position was optimism in Alberta's Black community as uh, Casey Maydu appointed Justice Minister. Yeah. (laughs) So, you know, uh, that's pretty big statement. (laughs) Yes. Yes, those are big, big words, <laughs> big words with big generalities behind them. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, as as you say, uh, there is uh, a piece there that has to do with uh, symbolic representation that does have historical meaning in our national context and our provincial context as well. So that's there. That's obvious. Beyond that, um, let's leave it where it is. I mean, again, it's to me, what is the functional track record of this party and of him as well in his professional capacity around uh, equity and justice and specifically around uh, issues of anti-racism since that seems to be where much of the current optimism lies. So it's just amazing to me how easily people um, concern themselves with appearances and discourse when uh, the practicalities of the matter are, are right there and they're front and center and the evidence is there. So I I, uh, I find it just uh, really amazing how there 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 can be such um, optimism among some that a shift in portfolio is somehow transforming this person into a completely different political actor against all evidence. 
uh, all evidence uh, up to now. Um, so it's it's an issue, and and you know the fact that one or two uh, people of African descent are feeling optimistic, or maybe more in terms of the congratulations that he's getting for uh, this appointment, um, does not in any way uh, cancel out what I've just said in terms of the the um, what we can look to. It, as his behavior and his actions and in terms of him being a representative of a larger uh, political party and the policies of that party that are in place. Um, Now, why did, why did the, the premier do this? Why, why is the, the UCP celebrating this? Well, of course they are look at the contemporary moment that we're in. We were just talking about this. So it makes perfect strategic sense uh, in the contemporary moment to, uh, and this is not taking away from his um, qualifications or uh, or his, his um, well, I'll just leave it there, his professional qualifications. Those are there. So those yeah. are not in question. Um, but this is obviously a strategic mm-hmm. move on the part of a party that um, sees this as one way to not be seen as ir- irrelevant in a contemporary moment where issues of uh, racism and anti-racism are at For the sure. forefront. And honestly, what better way to to do this than to appoint someone who is just going to continue the ineffectiveness of the party when it comes to these issues, but will provide the appearance that uh, that's not in fact what's going on. I mean, it's interesting too, right? Because the, as far as I've seen his, his, his time as the minister of municipal affairs, um created all sorts of friction in places where they really didn't want there to be friction in in the rural areas for example and in terms of how how the how revenues were were being divvied out to to rural areas and and things like this um you know he carried the the weight on on that uh and i wouldn't be surprised also you know if if some of that um attitude uh, in some cases, in for a small minority of of other elected representatives, you know, his his appearance, his identity might have very well been an issue for some of those folks. But I think it's important to remember too that they just really have uh, hacked away at at money for for rural areas, and now they've appointed someone from. Grand Prairie to take over the municipal affairs. And also on top of that, you have the previous minister of justice who was catching all sorts of shit for, you know, corruption, whatever stuff, accusations around on corruption and cronyism. He's got cover now too. He's been moved away from, from that portfolio. And I think also mm-hmm. too, there is, there is, and I haven't really fully formed the thought around this, but the idea of the way that I think conservatives are very good at weaponizing identity politics themselves, even though they they say they hate identity politics, more often than not, they're they are really good at at you know um, making 
flipping flipping the script in that you know well you said this against this person therefore you're sexist or you're racist or um you know any number of ists and isms out there when when it's really just a projection of the own their own internal policies and and actions as government does that make any sense <laughs> It, it, yeah, yeah, I, I see what you're saying there. You know, I, I think too about the way that um, you have two coexisting uh, realities right now within the party. You still have the speech right. writer there and you have this appointment. And so for this party, these two things yeah. coexist. And just for folks who are un just for folks who are unfamiliar, um, there is a speechwriter in Alberta's premier's uh, office who has written all sorts of disgusting things uh, about residential schools in Canada and just all around really reprehensible stuff. And you know, as a party that has just steamrolled so many people, it's super strange that they're keeping him around when they could just kind of shuffle him out so someone owes him a lot of favors for some reason yeah so you would expect there to be a lot of cognitive dissonance around that how can both of these things still be there mm -hmm. and coexisting at the same time but they do in this party and so for me that goes back to this issue of what is the function mm -hmm. of all of this and for the folks who are expecting that there will be some sort of very thoughtful and skillful uh, progressive approach on the part of uh, of this appointment, uh, you know that uh, that is incredibly um, optimistic and and uh, and really what an ability to close mm -hmm. one's eyes to um, to what's actually mm -hmm. happening and the evidence that we actually For have. Sure. So so yes, one can one can note that this is of some symbolic significance historically. I also think there's a very bad habit of deindividualizing black people. And this can happen within our communities of African descent uh, as well sometimes when we look to that one person as represented, oh my gosh, one of us made it. Well, we have to remember this is an individual with his own thinking, his own subjective experience, his own political allegiances. Um, you know, so, and in that sense, um, he's an individual and is not going to be, you know, we tend to kind of conflate what the person looks like with the politics that they're likely to have or how they're likely to uh, to act professionally um, or or in the job. And so I can, yeah. you, no, I, you know, sorry, I, mean? I just have to, so I, can I just, I just have to, I, you just reminded me too about how there was some kerfuffle a while ago about how, uh, the, every country ever that the NDP had an influence in or socialism existed in, I think was what he was trying to get at 
black people suffered more which well anyway it's like obviously i i feel weird just repeating that because it's it it almost puts a lie out there in a sense um and and you know sort mm -hmm. of uh gives uh gives cover to to the ills of capitalism and so on but just yeah that's just one example right where this this he obviously has a perspective that is very much tied to to uh you know right-wing capitalist interests uh first and foremost and i think Absolutely. the other thing too is that you know it's very clear and obvious to folks who who pay attention right that this is a government that's very much a command and control government where what the premier uh you know obviously i i can't can only speculate but essentially what the premier wants the premier gets and you are to deliver that message you do not have independence you're not an independent actor for your constituents and i think that's really politics across the board now throughout canada uh, i don't think there is a lot of independence when you're part of a caucus here um or you know I think a lot of that went away in the in the 90s any sort of um uh you know there's there's a lot of caucus discipline a lot more caucus discipline now than than there ever has been i believe i could be wrong mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and this attempt to like this attempt to um color him as potentially progressive in this in this one sense because of what right. he looks like and because he's a person of african descent um is is taking away from him in a very uh we we really need to be questioning this because he has shown us what his political allegiances right. are so why are we not giving him the respect <laughs> um and and remembering his individuality mm -hmm. in that sense the the man has told us where his political allegiances are mm -hmm. he has shown us where the political allegiances are and there's still this um compulsion to look at his phenotypical features and appearance and ethnocultural background and say yeah, but if he looks like that and he comes from that ethnocultural background, then he must, in essence, represent these progressive progressive values. So we we have to be careful because that is what racism does. That's one of the things that racism does is to consistently de-individualize um, de-individualize the racialized as a way of chipping away at that mm -hmm. humanity. Uh, and I say that, of course, as someone critical of, uh, of his right. political allegiances and so right. on. Right. And, and in a way, too, it almost plays into the, the, the exceptionalism ideas of, you know, uh, white supremacist thinking, where it's like, there is exception for the for those racialized people that are able to to ascend you know whatever racist ideas there are about certain people culturally right so because oh well this guy made it why can't you right without looking at all the other conflicting um material 
challenges that that someone may have in in their life right like because i don't know i have no idea like he could his family could be doctors for all i know right like so that 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 in and of itself is you know depending what where where did he start off in his life when he came here i don't know i i haven't done that research right but it's like whereas someone who who may have uh, a refugee experience into canada um is it's a very very different reality and in terms of um you know how how to to live a good life or even how to have a a, a basic uh meaningful existence that isn't a grind yeah yeah well you know and whatever those differences are in terms of subjective mm -hmm. experience um again what we really are looking at is the track record right. and the evidence i know for me that's yeah. all i'm interested in <laughs> i'm absolutely disinterested in some of these other things those are good for you know um social gatherings where we can talk about where right. we all grew up um but you know when we're talking about this kind yeah. of position uh and and one that really has concrete practical effects on so many people's lives then we're looking mm -hmm. at track record um and established mm -hmm. track record right so Congratulations to him for all of the more um, non-substantive <laughs> reasons, I would say. More of the aesthetic reasons, more of the, because, you know, there is important, uh, there is importance sure. in symbolism, for sure. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I just worry when I see, um, especially I think for me, I do, I, I do worry when I see uh, some within communities of African descent who seem to be genuinely concerned and wanting progressive mm -hmm. change um, too easily focusing on every superficiality but what the track record mm -hmm. actually mm -hmm. shows. That's not helpful in terms of really pushing forward um, uh, substantive progressive change for sure and i've just got a few minutes here and uh, but i i do have to pre preamble this because i think that because we're recording in this type of discussion it's really important to to be careful on how i state something especially around you know the fact that we have the 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 first uh justice minister of african descent so i think not to, again to take away from his professional accomplishments and whether or not he's he is um of uh, you know uh ha should be in this position this is a decision made by the premier he's done the work he's whatever all of these things sure but also back to what we were talking about in regard to the speech writer i think it's also a really interesting just from a political strategy point of view it's a really interesting pivot point wherein the premier can now say, what do you mean? We have the first justice minister and solicitor general of, of African descent in the history of Canada. How can I be racist? Right. And in, in the sense that this is often a tactic of, of folks in power to place racialized people in positions to deflect from other harmful policies or aspects of, of an administration.
Yes, I agree. I agree. And and to uh, co-opt, and again, in saying this, this is not a comment on his qualifications. Those are not in question for me at all. But as you're saying, it's it's about a kind of practice of real politic on the part of the UCP and the way that these kinds of appointments can be strategically used uh, as a form of uh co-optation, uh, co-optation in an aesthetic sense, uh, and then mobilized to undermine progressive politics. And that piece needs to be taken very seriously by everyone who is interested in, in broadly speaking, a more equitable society. Absolutely, 100%. Maki, thank you so much uh, for your thoughts and your time today. I really, really appreciate it. I hope we get to do this again. I really enjoyed the conversation. And uh, is there any, what should I plug in terms of uh, following you on Twitter is, is a good place if people want to find you? Sure, yes, <laughs> yeah. Uh, my <laughs> And I say, you hear, you hear my, uh, was that a hesitation? I'm not sure what that was. It's, it's a reflection of the fact that I consider myself to be a bit of a dinosaur. So yeah. um, yes, I, I, I am on Twitter. Um, the handle is at Mackie Motapanyani. Um, I do mostly post there for current current events for my students and so on for our discussions. Cool. Um, and every every once in a while, maybe comment on something. Um, nothing really to plug, you know. Okay. As a as I mentioned earlier, my my work is sort of in the background um, with my students, with the classes, and every once in a while in a. Uh, conversation such as this one which is um really nice and and i have to tell you this podcast is just um so encouraging for me and giving me a lot of hope (laughs) um because yes because i i can feel intellectually isolated here Mm. sometimes um and part of that is just the busyness of life Mm -hmm. and um you know not not being able to um, make grow those connections mm-hmm. and and maybe even sustain them because we're just so busy with with home and kids and, and work. But uh, it's it's lovely, it's wonderful um, to see this this project and uh, just really looking forward to the the future future. What do we call these sessions? Podcasts? Sure. Um, yeah. Episodes. Episodes. I think. Episodes. Thank <laughs> it's you. Okay. You see this? It's okay. I mean. <laughs> This now you imagine what my students have to deal with. It, yeah, I mean, I, I had a concussion a while ago, like my sixth or seventh. So I totally my words that used to be there aren't there anymore. So it's all good. Yeah. Worry about yeah. It. But uh, thank you again. And honestly, uh, if you're you know not to put you on the spot, but I am putting you on the spot because it is still. Recording. <laughs> Luckily, we're not live yet. But eventually, you know, the goal is to to start doing at least once a week a, a live episode. Um, but yeah, or once a month to start maybe. Um, but I would love to have you on at least once a month if, if that would interest you, obviously time allowing, you know, as school starts and everything like that, I can imagine. But Mm -hmm. I I just think that, um, you have a very, um, an awesome perspective that was really important for folks to hear. 
Um, and I always learn whenever I have conversations with you. So, you know, well, same here. Oh. <laughs> this is, and, and I was just about to say, you know, this, because to me, this is like the, the much easier way of organizing a hangout. Yes. Right. Yes. Because then I actually get to keep in touch and, you know, get to, to benefit from what I, I mean, I find this really intellectually stimulating and fun. Right. Um, but I don't, we don't have to do the logistics around childcare yeah, and yeah. all the other things, right? Cool. So I'm just going to treat this as a, as a monthly hangout. Love it. Okay, perfect. We're done. So we'll, <laughs> yeah. the, the, the monthly hang with Maki uh, Motopanyane. <laughs> <laughs> or something very kind yeah, of yeah. you <laughs> well it's kind of you to indulge me in that way too because you're actually kind of saving my life so i appreciate oh that. my god well i'll put that on my resume also uh, yeah. <laughs> lifesaver uh, yeah awesome. absolutely oh thank you so much yeah, i really yeah. really appreciate it thank you for your work and we'll we'll do this again sooner than later Sounds good. Thanks so Take much, care. Lucas. Take care. Okay, bye. Hey there. Thank you so much for listening. This is going to be quick. I want to close out with a quote from Jonathan Smucker's Hegemony How-To. says, We can conceptualize the symbolic contest as the layer of a hegemonic contest, a struggle between those in power and those without that is concerned with culture, meaning, framing, and common sense. Winning this contest is indispensable, but it is certainly not enough. We also have to win an institutional contest, which is concerned with leadership, organizational capacity, and ground game of a subjective political actor, e.g. a social movement or political party. That being said, statues fall, governments can too. Keep going and take care. Episode 002 of Our Calgary was written, recorded, and produced by me, myself, and I in the traditional territories of the Blackfoot Confederacy, Siksiga, Kainai, Pikani, the Sutina, the Stony Nakoda Nations, the Metis Nation Region 3, and the Treaty 7 region of Southern Alberta. 